Welcome to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation podcast. I'm Vicky Tung, the Programme Manager for Futures and Innovation here at the Centre. Our annual innovation report brings into focus innovations that can benefit international civil society organisations and also shows in turn how these organisations are benefiting society in challenging or complex contemporary contexts. This podcast episode forms part of our 2020 edition on civil society innovation and urban inclusion, highlighting how a range of organisations are working in cities around the world to deliver inclusive solutions for whole communities or particularly marginalised or vulnerable groups of residents. In each of these podcast case stories, we really want to lift the lid on these innovations and hear directly from the people at the heart of designing and delivering them. Today I'm pleased to be joined by Sean Jones, who is the Strategic Policy and Programmes Manager at the International Civil Society Organisation, HelpAge International. Thanks so much for talking to me today, Sean. Thanks, Vicky. It's great to have an opportunity to talk through and kind of reflect, I think, on the work that we've been doing, which is something we don't always pause to do. So yeah, it's a nice uh, opportunity to do that. And I think it's great for other, other people to hear that and, and share your reflections as well. So an easy opener, could you please introduce HelpAge and your organisational experience of urban programming and advocacy work, please? HelpAge International, we're uh, a global network. So we have over 100 member kind of civil society organisations in different countries across the world. And all those organisations tend to work around issues around ageing and older people. So we're rights-based. And yeah, we, we work across a, a range of different issues that impact people's lives in older age from income and health security you know we have a, a humanitarian response piece of work as well but we largely try and work through civil society organizations that work on similar issues and we try and kind of convene those together to push for change in terms of our urban programming and advocacy i'd say none of our or not much of our direct kind of programs at the moment are specifically looking at urban issues uh, however, they do often take place in urban contexts, and I think that's one of the kind of distinctions or the false distinctions we have to be aware of as we talk about these issues. Because obviously, you know, you have people who live in a big city and people who live in a small village, but actually there's a lot of people in between who live in kind of towns and smaller cities who face a lot of the issues that we would associate with urban contexts. So a lot of our programming does take place around health and income security in those contexts, but doesn't necessarily respond to the fact that those contexts are urban as much as we'd like to. So then we have this piece of work that's starting to look at those things and it's doing it as well with, with global level advocacy. So we've been engaging with a number of global level actors around urban issues and starting to better understand specifically what aging in an urban context means and how we can flag that up with different stakeholders and actors. Great. So I think this is clearly an emerging area of work for you. But what are the core parts of what you've been doing so far in order to make urban spaces more inclusive of and for older people? This is work we've been doing now for maybe three or four years, and it's relatively small scale, but we've had some significant wins I'd say. So a few years ago there was a, a big urban conference called Habitat 3 which happens every 20 years and it's organized by UN Habitat, the UN Agency on, on Urban Issues and we saw an opportunity to engage and influence there and I think that was a really nice starting point for our work. 
so around that what we did is we did some some focus groups and engagement with older people in different places around the world often through our network members who do already have work on urban issues in a number of countries so you know i could easily say that our network members and partners they do more work on urban issues than we do and it's certainly a case of us as the the global level organization learning from their experience and then taking that to these processes that we're engaging with so as part of the lead up to habitat 3 and the drafting of the new urban agenda which was the declaration that came out of the conference we participated or we actually organized a coalition of organizations working on aging and urban issues to input into that process with some good success so the zero draft of the new urban agenda had two mentions of aging and older people and the final declaration had 27 and it was very broad in terms of mentioning aging and older people across all the different issues that the new urban agenda addresses and the new urban agenda has had mixed success or let's say limited momentum in terms of being taken up but it's certainly being used in a lot of places as a guiding document alongside the sustainable development goals as to how urban development should take place over the next 20 years. And so it's really great that older people are in there and that some of the issues that older people face around, you know, personal security, around housing, around physical accessibility, around public and green spaces, that older people are specifically mentioned in there. So obviously the hope is that that's cascading down into national and local level implementation. So that's certainly one of the areas that we've been doing work. And then I think since then, uh, what we've been trying to do is maybe build up the body of knowledge and evidence around older people's experience of urban life, because there's not that much research out there. I mean, that's not surprising. Older people are often excluded, marginalized, forgotten about. But actually, we can learn a lot from understanding how cities perpetuate exclusion and marginalization of lots of different people or, or lots of different intersecting identities and characteristics of which older age is certainly one of them, but alongside things like gender and poverty and other things. So yeah, we've been doing some kind of community level research where we're definitely building our understanding of what really matters to older people and also the, the consequence of those issues, you know. So one issue that's come through strongly, I think, is around a sense of personal security and whether someone has the confidence to go outside to access the services or to see friends and family. And it's about understanding what's the day-to-day -day consequence of that. So for example, a lot of older people we've spoken to would say, you know, they don't feel safe going outside. They worry about physical violence or, or intimidation and things like that. And so what that means is that if they need to go to the doctor, they can get to the doctor because let's say they live in an area that has decent streets and, and transportation. So they're able to get there, but if they don't feel confident and comfortable doing so, then they tend to only do the things that they have to. And so it means that they see friends and family less often, that they go to a place of worship or to a, a public space less often. And slowly we see this creeping kind of sense of isolation and loneliness, which comes through quite strongly as a very significant issue in older age. So we're doing this community level research to better understand the experiences of older people in urban settings and then to understand the day-to-day -day impact of that on their quality of life. So diving into that a bit deeper and to help listeners better understand the scale and dimensions of the problem you're solving, could you start with some of the, the numbers that relate to this area? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm always somewhat hesitant to use kind of data and numbers because I think in some ways it flags 
you know, the significance of an issue, but also in some ways they can be interpreted in, in very interesting ways. And when it comes to urban, it's very difficult to define, as I mentioned earlier, who lives in a city, who doesn't. It's difficult to define all these different things when we look at the numbers involved. Having said that, I think the narrative around older people is very interesting because I think a lot of people would have this idea that older people, we have this idea of them being left behind in, in the villages, which is certainly an issue and certainly something that happens. Having said that, if you're an older person, you're more likely to be living in a city. Older people have urbanized at a higher rate than the rest of the population, which I think is, is counter to the narrative that we would expect. So for example, 58% of people aged over 65 live in what some people would define as a city, which is the highest kind of rate of urbanization amongst any age cohort. So that means over half a billion older people globally, even 23 million in Africa, which we tend to consider a young continent, particularly in terms of its urbanization. So we think of young people moving to the cities, but actually there's 23 million older people living in African cities, which is a massive, you know, that's a massive uh, population. Yeah, that needs to be considered. And of course, as well, more than half of that half a billion is in low and middle income countries. And that's going to rise quite a lot over the next few decades. So by 2050, we're expecting 80% of the older people who live in cities to be in low and middle income countries. So again, we need to be aware of the specific issues that low income context presents in terms of urban lives and older age. Going into the story behind these numbers, what are some of these aspects from your research of the marginalisation and why older people are often forgotten populations in cities? So I think the, the kind of the, the community level research and engagement that we've done has flagged up certainly a lot of common themes and concerns that older people have when they live in, in urban contexts. So a lot of that is around sense of security, as I already mentioned, that certainly comes through very strongly as an inhibitor of people's ability to go out and to access services to see friends and family. I think another one is transportation, because people they really benefit a lot from having the ability to go to places that they need to go to, but also places that they want to go to. And there's different dimensions of that. Obviously, it comes down to physical ability or physical accessibility of the transportation options available to them. And obviously, in older age, our physical capacity kind of changes in different ways. But also, it's not just about places that you have to go to, it's places that you also want to go to, to see friends and family, to maintain those kind of social connections that change as we, as we grow older. Alongside the different issues that older people face when living in a city, I think we need to consider who the city is designed for. And often cities are seen as places of economic productivity, as hubs. They're seen as kind of young and dynamic and always changing. And that influences the decisions that are taken. So, for example, public transportation networks, if we look at London or New York or, you know, big cities in, in low income countries as well, they're often designed as what we call this, a spider network, where the lines of trains or, or underground or buses bring people from the neighborhoods and the suburbs into the center of the city, because that's where people go to work. So those investments in public transportations are being done to support what's perceived as economic productivity. And what that means is that we're then excluding people who aren't perceived to be economically productive. So an older person who might be working informally or might not be working 
but needs to visit hospital or needs wants to see friends and family, they don't have the transportation connectivity that they need to be able to do those things because the system is privileging people who are fully physically able, who are working formal economy jobs in the centre and who are probably men. There's obviously a gender as well as an age dimension to all of this. So I think we need to just really consider and understand to take a systems approach of how a city exists, who it's being designed for, how decisions are being made, how policies and investments privilege certain people and further exclude and marginalise lots of people, including people in older age. A common theme that we're seeing is this, the need for systems-wide thinking and systems-wide approaches as a, as a core dimension of in- inclusive urban approaches. What does this look like for your work? HelpAge or organisations like HelpAge have to be quite considerate as to where they choose to intervene because I don't think we can go in and try and touch everything. Where we've had success and influence is certainly at the global level in terms of stakeholders and actors that work on urban issues. So UN Habitat specifically in their most recent strategy have included older people and ageing issues for the first time. And I know that setting up their new teams, they're certainly considering ageing and and older people uh, more than they were before, which is really great. And hopefully we'd see that cascade then down into policies and practice at the national and local level. I think on the other end of things, HelpAge works with, you know, lots of some very small civil society organizations. And we've also seen real potential for those organizations for, for groups of older people to work as activists on the local level and to bring about real change. So one of our most recent uh, research projects on urban issues worked with older people in Nairobi and also in Delhi. And they collected data from older people and the different issues that they face. And then those groups of older people were equipped with that evidence and they went to the different stakeholders they'd identified in their communities. And that might be, uh, you know, the local council, kind of political representation, service providers, municipal corporations, as they're known in some places, public transportation providers. And they went with this evidence and data and showed, you know, this is These are the issues that we're facing in the very local area that we live in. And they were able to see, you know, real kind of change on a day-to-day kind of quite pragmatic level, which I think was really nice. So when we think of a systems approach, it is quite complex because it's a very big system if we look at the city in a whole. But I think HelpAge is trying to work at that global level and bring value add to civil society around aging in that sense, but then also to, to support and encourage the very local level activism that can take place as well. And I think that we see that with many of the organisations that are featured into, in this report, really the, the multi-level engagement from the local and the community and the city through to national, through to global policy. So it's, it really does require the ability to engage effectively and mobilise at different levels. Could you expand more on the different types of stakeholders you engage with your urban work, please? In terms of the different kind of actors and stakeholders involved, I think we've got the national level urban policies that often forget or exclude older people and aging issues. And then below that, you've got your city level municipal authority. An example where we've seen the significance of that was the work that we did in Nairobi, where groups of older people had collected data on the issues that they face. And armed with that, they went to speak to political representatives at the municipal city level and they were really able to get some buy-in from some of those representatives who understood the significance of the issues that all the people face and also you know let's not forget that 
older people have a certain degree of political capital in some places. And so those political representatives really came on board. They're moving forward with presenting a statement to the assembly in Nairobi on aging issues, which I think is a really nice outcome. And then below that, you've got all these kind of smaller actors, which are delivering lots of different services, and they might be kind of quasi-governmental or non-governmental bodies or, or companies or lots of different types of stakeholders that community-level activists can engage with. So I think another nice example was a similar work that we did in Delhi, where, again, groups of older people through our local network member collected data on the experiences of older people in a few communities in Delhi. And then armed with that, the older persons as activists went to different stakeholders that they'd identified. And these included the municipal level corporations, they call them there. So we might call them public service providers. And that could include the water company, public transportation providers, all those people. And an example there, and very kind of hyper-local, which I think is always important to remember that a lot of the challenges that older people face can be very specific to the area that they live in. And so what happened in Delhi was that there had been a street which was flooded with, with sewage because of a, you know, a series of block drains and a burst pipe, I think. And they went to, the, the older people went to the water company and they flagged up this issue and they said, you know, this is the impact it's having on our day-to-day lives because some of us are housebound. We're not able to go and see our friends and family. We're not able to pop out to the shops. And then the municipal water company, within a few days, they'd been able to be quite responsive. There was some pressure from local politicians that older persons had also been to see. Uh, And then they were able to come in and fix the pipe and the drainage. And so it's a small thing, but actually having a massive impact on people's lives and actually you know, almost imprisoning them within their, within their housing and their apartments. Another example in Delhi was the, a group of older, older people activists, they went to the municipal corporation that's responsible for maintaining green spaces, public spaces in that part of Delhi. And they highlighted why some of the local parks in their area are really significant for them because it's where they go to to interact, to see friends and family, to do some exercise as well. So the municipal corporation, they sent a representative around and they did actually a walkabout with the group of older people, where the older people could flag up the different issues that they had with the park, such as broken pavements, lack of benches to sit down on, or where there had been some vandalism taking place that made the space feel unwelcoming for them. And together with the municipal corporation, they kind of drew up a small plan. And then within a few weeks, they'd actually started to implement some of these improvements. So the paths were being relayed and there was a, you know, a fence replaced around the square. And so small improvements like that. But I think what it really showed was that older people and with data are able to act as local community activists and deliver real Uh, you know, pragmatic, useful change that not only impacts them, but actually improves services and the environment, the built environment for the entire community, which I think is really nice. It's about older people not just being heard and having their issues flagged, but actually participating in decision making or, or decision influencing for sure. So one of the ideas that we've seen was through some organizations that we work with in South Africa, where older people were participating in community consultation groups with the police. 
And that was seen as really useful because they were able to flag up the specific kind of day-to-day issues that they were facing that the police could then try and respond to, whether they did or not, I'm not sure. But this idea of consulting with older people and other representatives from the community, of consulting and including older people in their experiences in the decision-making and planning of the the different stakeholders, I think is is really powerful. Obviously, COVID-19 has been an important change to many organisations' work. What adaptations or new issues have the past few months and the experience of the pandemic for older people thrown up for you as an organisation in terms of priorities to work on? COVID-19 is obviously a, a big event that is happening at the moment and it's having a really significant impact on, on older people. Certainly something that we've been responding to and, and considering. I think when we intersect that with urban issues, what's immediately obvious is that housing and the condition and the circumstances of housing that older people live in in low-income countries and contexts has bearing on COVID-19 and the response to it because a lot of the measures around social isolation, around hand washing, around distancing, they're just not feasible when you think about a high density informal community setting. And so I guess there's a need to look at alternatives in those circumstances and also to look at how other measures are as important that it can't just be you know, a response based on on those kind of basic measures that aren't necessarily going to be effective in those contexts. The other kind of very obvious place that that I think it comes through is is in transportation. You know, public transportation is obviously a space where people are very close and where there's high risk. And so what I think we have to be very careful or wary of policies that discriminate based on age to start with, but that are excluding older people from physical spaces in the city, but also from mobility services. So, you know, if we're not able to provide transportation services that are safe for older people to use, that's going to have a really massive detrimental impact on their lives. And, you know, with COVID, as we've seen, we don't, we don't know how long this is going to last. We don't know for how long those policies are going to be in place. So we can't underestimate these kind of restrictive policies on different people. And also that it's just not okay to have policies that discriminate purely based on, on age, on chronological age. You're listening to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation Podcast. This episode is part of our 2020 Innovation Report on Civil Society Innovation and Urban Inclusion. In the report, we're looking at innovation through lenses of disruption and scalability in particular. So starting with disruption, one of these dimensions is how the approach that the organisations are using are disrupting the status quo, be it assumptions, be it ways of working. Starting with wider system and sector level disruption, how would you describe this for your work? I think when we, one of the, one of the narratives within kind of inclusive urbanization is around physical accessibility. And I think it's really significant. You know, it's really important that people are able to move to where they want to go and that they're not facing physical barriers in the built environment around them. Having said that, I think what the work we've done is flagging and what older people are talking about again and again, which I think I've already mentioned somewhat, is this idea that even if you do have 
physical accessibility in the built environment in the community that you live in. If you're not comfortable, confident, if you don't enjoy going outside, then slowly, slowly you stop going outside as much. The factors that sit alongside physical accessibility of the built environment are things like sense of security, whether you feel safe when you go outside, particularly at night, people would feel unsafe as a gender dimension to a certain extent. The other aspect is whether you just enjoy going outside or whether you feel it's an intimidating, noisy, stressful environment. Another dimension is it's to do with physical accessibility, but people's kind of fear of, of tripping and falling. So even if you do have decent quality of paving, people can still feel nervous about that. Another issue is the provision of toilets. And so people consider all of these different aspects when they make choices as to whether to go outside and where they want to go. And as I mentioned earlier, I think how that manifests itself is that a person will think, okay, I have to go to the doctor or I have to go to the bank today. And so they will make that journey. So they will make it with hesitance. And so then when they sit at home and they think, well, I'd like to see my daughter or I'd like to go and see my friend or I'd like to go and sit in the park. All these factors come into play around sense of security, confidence in going out, enjoyment of that journey. And slowly people inhibited from going outside. And then we see the consequence of that is, is loneliness and isolation, which is a really significant issue in older age, including, if not especially, for older people who live in cities. And I think we need to break out of seeing physical accessibility as the only significant factor and take a much more holistic understanding of how people make choices about where they go to make sure that people get to enjoy all the different things that living in a city offer them. Yeah, I think there's some really strong quality and well-being dimensions that are, that sound like they're really underestimated. And that's why the kind of research that you're able to bring and, and, and those perspectives are so important. And in terms of HelpAge as an organisation, why does working with older people in urban setting perhaps present a departure from what you were doing before or might lead to future evolution of how you work? So I think for HelpAge, a lot of our work has been around health and care. It's been around income, social protection. It's been around humanitarian response. And urban is significant, or, or you know, the fact that increasing numbers of older people are living in cities is significant to all of these issues. But then on top of that, we also have this more, these other issues that people face. And I think whereas HelpAge or the development sector as a whole has been focused on political and economic dimensions. I think we've somewhat neglected the spatial dimension of people's experience of their lives and of their well-being. So I think to look again at what we do and how we do it and to understand the people, the older people that we work with and that they are located within a space I think is really significant. And that doesn't have to mean urban. It could mean, you know, the village that they live in. But actually, I think what we're realizing is that the space that a person is located in is significant alongside economic, political, social dimensions of their existence. And so if we are to look at how to address or improve their health and income security and how to uh, respond in humanitarian crises that are increasingly happening in urban contexts. We have to think about the spatial dimension of where people exist. And going back to the point earlier about 
how older people move around and how comfortable and confident they are to make journeys. The space in which a person exists is often shrinking in older age. So we'd talk to older people who used to say that they would often go to the city centre, but now they just stay within their more local immediate area. So understanding the space that a person exists in, I think, is really significant. And that's something new for us to have to consider. In terms of the approach and the work that you've been doing, how might it potentially scale up in future across cities, across countries? We're still at kind of a stage of wanting to build our understanding of older people's lives in urban contexts. So we're still looking at doing more research, understanding particularly the role of transportation and mobility, because I think that's coming through is very significant. In terms of how we scale the work, I think we have seen these examples of how older people armed with data that they've collected themselves can become effective activists at the local level, delivering change not only for older people, but for the entire community. And so I think there's certainly potential there to scale a model that enables older people to act as data collectors, as, as activists, and to, to deliver that very hyper-local level change. One of the ways that we're doing that is that we're developing a kind of digital data collection and engagement platform that would equip older people with bespoke tools for collecting data on their experiences of the place that they live in at a very kind of hyper-local level. And then they would be able to use that data and evidence as, as happened in Nairobi and Delhi to influence the, the different local stakeholders that they've engaged with. And so taking a step back and reflecting more broadly, what are your main takeaways for other organisations based on your experience so far of working in complex urban settings? So I'd say we've certainly recognised that space is significant, right? That the place that a person lives in is really influential on their experience of, of life. And so it can't be ignored. We can't think of two people living in two different places as facing the same challenges. We have to consider and be aware of the location and the space that they inhibit. So I think that's really about a mindset of, of understanding and being aware of that. I think we've also understood that urban life is very complex it's about the different activities that someone is involved in. It's about the different characteristics, not just older age, the different identities and characteristics that they carry and how those interact. And then I think we've also realized that it's not just about addressing the kind of traditional development sector issues such as health and income or livelihoods and security. It's also about looking at those more spatial dimensions, which are things like the physical built environment around us, and then services, especially transportation and mobility, because these things are all obviously interconnected and influence each other. But you know, if you're providing medical services at a particular location, how do you make sure that people are able to reach those services? So I think just a, an awareness of the spatial dimensions of someone's existence, I think is what we need to be trying to, to do better. And finally, how can we Keep in touch with your work. We have a website, which is helpage.org forward slash cities is where you'd find the latest stuff that we're working on. And obviously, I'd also invite anybody to get in touch with any comments or, or questions or ideas or anything that they'd want to, to discuss with myself. And we'll include that information in the podcast episode description. 
Thanks so much for your time, Sean. I think it's been fascinating to hear about what you're doing both at a hyperlocal level in terms of community activism, but also the big changes at a global policy level that you've been able to do through your work. And I think it's great for other people to understand some of the complex and nuanced dimensions of older people and urban issues. So thank you very much for sharing that. And we look forward to seeing where your work goes next. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, it's been really nice to reflect on on where we're at and to to talk through it, which, yeah, like I said, is not something we do enough of. And yeah, I'm, I'm glad it's been interesting and I look forward to listening to the other podcasts in the series as well. Great. Well, thanks very much. And I think that's what we're trying to do with this report is provide that space for people to reflect and, and hear what others are doing and, and working with different aspects and, and what that means for their work as well. So thanks again. Great. Thank you. You can find links to more information and resources on both this innovation case study and the Centre's 2020 Civil Society Innovation and Urban Inclusion Report in the podcast description. Many thanks to our producer, Julia Pazos, for all your hard work in making this podcast series happen. This podcast is kindly supported by the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung and its Strong Cities 2030 initiative, promoting global collaboration and knowledge sharing for sustainable urban development.